0: Welcome to Books That Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work.
1: A bad boss is actually a great boss because you learn more around what not to do than what to do. And you see these leadership behaviours and styles that go directly against your own values, your own principles, and you ingrain them within your psyche and you vow to never repeat them uh, again.
0: That's Hamish Thompson, author of It's Not Always Right to Be Right, a really refreshing read and perspective from someone who used to be that person who liked to be right every single time. Before we get into it and a wonderful conversation with Hamish, congratulations to Jackie Vanderkay for winning Leader by Design. I know you'll love the book as much as you enjoyed the episode. And a quick plug for books at work, please share it with others. Tell me what you like and don't like, and if there's a book and author you want featured, just let me know. On to our speed read of It's Not Always Right to Be Right. Hamish Thompson lives in Australia now, but he grew up in New Zealand. He's been offshore for years, pursuing roles like regional president and global brand head of Mars Incorporated. He was a senior marketer for Reebok International and, early on, a fresh-faced account executive in their London advertising scene. Hamish reckons if he knew then what he knows now about leading, he would have been so much better, more capable, more confident, potentially more successful, and infinitely happier. He hopes there might be one or two things in the book that resonate so strongly that we claim them as our own and stamp them on our leadership. Let me start with a couple of the ideas and concepts before we get more from our chat with Hamish. At the heart of this book is a chapter that has the same name as the book title. For some people, there is always a winner and always a loser. They like to take control of situations and they like the power that goes with that. But what comes with this is frustration, confusion, annoyance and distraction. It affects and damages relationships and it can get personal. The reality, though, is that sometimes there is no right or wrong, no correct or incorrect solution, just different agendas. Hamish advocates for instead looking for a few other things, outcomes that are mutually agreeable, relationships that stay intact and are actually strengthened, values that stay intact and success being measured by the enduring relationships that have been fostered. Hamish has a framework for keeping working relationships intact when you are diametrically opposed to another person. There are four pieces to it. One, assess. Make a quick decision whether you're in a no-win situation. 2. Choose your battles. Let those of low or average importance go through to the keeper. Accept, walk away and move on. As a leader, remember when there is little or no compromise, people and teams will become disengaged and inertia will set in. 3. Listen. Understand the real reason behind the rejection. Why is there such disconnection and misalignment? You need to dig deep to find that out. 4. Decide, is it worth compromising to maintain the relationship or do you play hardball and accept that the relationship will decline? Hamish advises, compromise might make you feel like you've lost the game, but you will have definitely saved the set. It's each of our call. To learn that it's okay to not always be right, we have to be open to learning from experience. Experience gives us a different perspective. Hamish talks about his insatiable desire to get ahead of the curve so he can lead, not manage, shape, not react, show, not tell, and fix before breaking. Some tips from him. He advocates building our ability to learn through adversity. Experience makes that less painful because we will get to a better result as a result. Build our ability to learn through others. Some of the best lessons are derived from others outside our immediate circle of influence and expertise. Getting emotionally removed means we can reflect more objectively. And then there's ability to learn through ourselves. That's the continual observation, reflection and refinement of ourselves. And through experience, how we get to know ourselves better today than we did yesterday and what the insights are that we get through that and how we learn from them. Let's hear more directly from Hamish about this and some of the other really interesting concepts in his book. Delighted to welcome Hamish Thompson to our Books That Work episode this week.
1: Hi Hamish. Hello Anna, great to be with you.
0: So our first question is always where in the world are you and what's the view out your window today?
1: So uh, I'm in the leafy North shore of Sydney. Um, Looking out the window, it's about 20 degrees Had a reasonably boozy uh, COVID free weekend. So uh, I think I should go for a run, but I'll probably be too lazy.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. Um, it's been interesting in the last wee while that author interviews during COVID. It's certainly given people a different perspective on on work and life. So um, hope you're having a lovely COVID-free day. Uh, I want to kick right into the book because there's lots in here that is really refreshing and some great ideas that I'm really looking forward to sharing with people. And one thing that I really liked was your concept of drains and radiators. What what what's what's that about? What what's a drain and, and what's a radiator?
1: Well, I've been probably following this Anna, for the last sort of twelve years within sort of CEO roles, but um, I wish I'd done it for the last thirty. So, drain and a radiator essentially are what uh, what they sound. A drain is an individual within a corporate, but occasionally happens in personal life, they're negative, they drain the energy, they've got limiting beliefs, they don't see uh, breakthrough or opportunity. For a leader, it's incredibly dangerous to have them around, but even more so for an organization, it actually infects a wider group of uh, other associates and employees. Um, The key thing within drains, you need to move quickly on them, no matter how good functional or technically they are. Um, if they are sort of they negatively inf- impact others, you need to actually make that um, movement. I've been a little bit slow to do that, in, uh, over the years. Um, and then a radiator, on the other hand, does exactly what they say. They're very full of opportunity, can do, results oriented, passionate, but they actually radiate that energy across others. And it's important as a leader, you reward and recognise radiators, place them in key projects, even if they don't have functional or technical knowledge, and definitely as part of your recruitment philosophy, uh, recruit radiators into your business. It's um, it's probably my number one priority in regard to recruitment.
0: In your experience, what proportion of drains versus radiators are there normally in an organisation? And can you grow radiators from drains?
1: I think it uh, it varies greatly depending on the culture of your organization. And uh, if you have a remit, a real concerted focus about building a positive can-do, but challenging environment, um, I think you can build that up to the majority of your organization. Um, we all have those drain moments, but it's around the consistency in regard to radiating infectious uh, possibility. Um, can you turn a drain into a radiator? I think yes. Some people are inherently always going to be drains, so sort of in their personality, and it's not right or wrong. It's just the way that they're actually made up. I think the best ways to do that is encourage and talk around and recognise and reward those people who are integrators, connectors of others. And you actually rate that ahead of functional technical expertise. And if you talk around that, promote them, place them on lead projects uh, of importance, uh, I think that message will get across the business.
0: Interesting. Right. So I want to get into the the core of the book, which is actually the title, which is It's Not Always Right to be Right. you've got loads of stories about what you've learned over the years around that. And you say people struggle with this concept of not always being, or that it's not always right to be right. What, Why do you think that is? And, and what does that look like in your experience?
1: Listen, I'll, I'll probably start it Anna on sort of personal basis. And I think uh, when you are a young or an aspiring leader, which uh, was a few years back now, um, you're inherently competitive. I think most of us are very results driven and you believe that you need to be right on every single occasion. Um, and I think unfortunately it makes the worst type of uh, leader. It's very common, but equally, um, it's actually probably the senior level at CEO that can often be the worst offenders. So on my basis, um, every single dialogue, discussion, debate, I thought I had to be right. There was always a winner, et cetera. Uh, It was like intellectual sparring, and I viewed business transactions as one-off, win-lose situations of monetary value, and unfortunately, that type of leadership, um, it restricts diversity of thought, Uh, new perspective doesn't come in, Um, unfortunately, it doesn't allow people to actually challenge or provoke or suggest new things, and why would you? place your input in it'll just get ignored and you'll lose in regard to a debate and if equally for others within uh, your domain it doesn't stretch and grow them overall. So uh, i think it's a common thing but the best leaders they concede uh, they talk around when they um, when they do lose uh, they show vulnerability um, but they actually step back and let others have their opinions ahead of their own as well.
0: So you said that you used to be like that and you've clearly learned to be
1: something different
0: how, how did what, what how did you learn that and how did that come about?
1: I think, I think probably the, the most important I think I was lucky in regard to sort of success along the years but when I actually sort of stepped back and I thought were these partnerships and relationships that you've built over time um, were they enduring and I started to sort of measure um business transactions differently so the monetary value and the the win aspect was important but more so um i now measure and i get my teams to measure was the depth and quality of that relationship with another party has it been enduring um was it a win-win and a mutual uh, win element and has stage two or stage three of that partnership actually led to transformation and results? Um, And I think the other element is when you start as a leader, whether it's experience or age or mistakes and insights, when you start valuing the opinions of others ahead of your own, um, it allows you to actually have a very open mind of the perspective of what could be possible. Um, And I think I've always enjoyed that sort of curiosity of uh, others' opinions um, can sort of add weight to your existing sort of thoughts and conceptions.
0: So when that happens, what's the difference that it makes? What What is the outcome when you do that?
1: Well, I think in my experience, the outcome is very clearly that your longer-term relationships based on that um, you know, trust element and depth of relationship, that's when breakthrough, transformational ideas, concepts, initiatives can come further. And on so many occasions, I've seen amazing, creative, innovative functional or technical brilliance and ideas they are never leveraged uh, to their full ability and they don't fail because of sort of logical greatness they fail because these partnerships that haven't been sort of fostered or ability to have the rest of the organization or other people Um, take it to the next level so transformation results um it's uh, definitely has made a, a massive difference and it's so much easier once you get that relationships and partnerships to build off those as opposed to start every time from scratch
0: so i was wondering if we could um Talk through a situation or a practical example of where where you're diametrically opposed to someone, and and what a possible way to approach that might be. Um, there's some tips in the book, but yeah, keen to to hear you walk us through that.
1: Yeah, well, probably if I if I think of sort of different examples, the the one that always comes to mind is around um, a global organisation trying to exert influence within local. Um, And there's pros and cons of what's sort of a a better approach. But I think the very first thing is from both sides, you seek to understand before understood. So you know the direction you want to travel, but actually step back and really hear the other party's um, viewpoint. Then I think the second element is you select your battles. Um, Is this worth actually compromising the relationship um, for the result of this individual tra- uh, transaction. And often in the global case, exerting you must follow this particular policy, this program, this initiative, it can actually get the local uh, player and uh, local unit offside directly. So select your battles and on the majority of occasions, never put a directive across. Um, And then I think the third practical one is start with that measurement system in mind, particularly as you start doing this early. um, Look to see as a result of concession, not necessarily having to do it your way, has the results been greater than your initial perception, And particularly on stage two or three? Um, And probably the last one, from just a leadership perspective, and I've always found this uh, the most beneficial, actually just step back. If somebody within your team or environment um want to do things a little bit differently don't direct just coach and empower even if your way you perceive it to be slightly better because what that does it'll stretch them it'll make them go within new development areas and uh it'll be a a massive unlocker of potential as well so it's easy to say but uh, there is actually a process uh, that uh, enables it because it's difficult concept for many to get their head around
0: Yes and in our speed read we've talked a little bit more about that so hopefully um, the speed read plus that conversation will help people um, with that, that model. Now some other concepts that you've got in the book, how, how can we make bad bosses great bosses?
1: I'd like to say there's an answer to uh, <laughs> to actually make a bad boss. I, I don't know if it is. Some bosses will have blind spots that they genuinely they're not aware on their leadership style or, or approach. Um, so th- that does happen occasionally, but um, it's, it's difficult on that. I think the concept, Anna, though, is that we all know that majority of people will leave a business not because of the organization itself or the values. They leave a business because of the, the line manager or direct boss. And unfortunately, when you get a bad boss, and let's face it, we we all have them over, over time, you start immediately to look elsewhere, you're thinking around your next role, how do I get into a different location, different boss, different company? And you're missing those opportunities of learning and development. And my experience on this is that a bad boss is actually a great boss because you learn more around what not to do than what to do. And you see these leadership behaviors and styles that go directly against your own values, your own principles, and you ingrain them within your psyche and you vow to never repeat them uh, again. And that's actually, it's, um, it is, and I found it's a very valuable learning experience providing you actually sort of sit back um, and think to yourself, okay, whilst I'm in this period, how can I get as much value and learn about what not to do uh, as opposed to just what to do? Um, And equally, every person you interact with, despite maybe being a bad boss, they've got some functional uh, brilliance and expertise within there. So it's about uh, actually searching that out um, to try and get benefit at a later stage.
0: I mean, what I took out of it was to kind of remove the emotion of that situation and you've got some quite practical tips there about um how to observe and how to how to note that down could you tell us about that like how how do you actually um not get caught up in the experience of that certain boss and deliberately learn from them
1: well i think first and foremost if you have that mindset of what can i take out of this experience um that's probably a key and catalyst to begin with. So start with that mindset and then actually really start documenting. And I have a specific sort of file labeled bad bosses. And what are the insights and behaviors that that bosses exhibited? And you document them, describe your feelings that you've taken out of that leadership style or of what you've observed of others um, and build that into your own leadership style vowed never to never actually uh, never actually repeat that as well the other thing as you said it's you do try and depersonalize which can be incredibly hard um, but if you start to treat it you know a little like feedback they say as a gift if you start to treat it as a learning opportunity an insight opportunity um, it is easier to actually depersonalize uh, that as well um, and i think the last one is start observing behaviors of not only your own uh, boss but those bosses uh, around that a uh, you admire so you've got a contrast but equally start observing the impact that other leadership behaviors and styles have on other people and sort of sitting back and reflecting or observing that just gives you a um, crystallizes what type of leadership brand uh, what are those artifacts processes signature Uh, elements of your leadership style uh, that you can take out of a bad boss. Um, It's a difficult concept, but uh, we all have them. So uh, when you get one, uh, leverage the hell out of them if you can.
0: And I really like the deliberateness of that. So deliberately observing the bad boss, but also deliberately observing the good boss as well you know sometimes we are so caught up in the day-to-day that deliberately observing both and taking note um, is a really lovely practical tip so thank you. Um, Now I'm intrigued there's a couple of bits in the book that I all had a bit of a reaction to Um, and so the first one I guess is the piece around get a life and so can you talk for you to tell us about your model of um, life work uh, balance And then I've got a couple of questions after that.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I term it life work balance and uh, Paul Polman, who is the CEO of Global Unilever, um, I heard him reference that at one stage and it just resonates with me. Uh, The first thing to say is that um, there's no right or wrong. Some people may actually uh, live to work and they enjoy that. Um, I have it sort of the other way around. And I think from my perspective, there's probably two areas. One the very best leaders realize that to be their most effective and on top of their game within a business sense, they have to have excellence in life. Now, how you go about doing that, Anna, there's uh, so numerous checklists. Bill George has got his sort of energy and uh, uh, life sort of model around how you balance fitness, finance, career, social connections, uh, et cetera. Um, but creating that balance and making yourself the best at work, in my experience, you have to have that within the life as well. And then the other side of it is that as a leader of others, you need to demonstrate that leadership does not mean life sacrifice. Um, And the best leaders, I think, have to be a role model to others to actually inspire others to be in leadership positions. And unfortunately, we've all seen that over the years. You think, gee, I don't really want that next promotion level uh, or go in a global role or a wider uh, remit because I see the sacrifice that that makes. And time and time again, I think the best leaders have that composure. They show there's a balance, and they show there's a satisfaction and enjoyment uh, on both fronts. Uh, It's a difficult balance to get right, but I think it's a critical one. Uh, Overall.
0: In the book, at the end of each chapter, you've got another leader who does a critique of your thoughts, and at the end of this one, you had leadership expert and women's advocate, Fabian Datton, who gave a bit of a different perspective to the life work thing. Just wondering if you could tell us what this was and whether you were surprised
1: by that. Listen, I've um, I've got an enormous amount of time for Fabian. I've known her for a number of years. And um, the reason I got people at the end of each chapter to critique is essentially, what's a a diversity of thought? uh, What's a totally different perspective on it? And uh, Fabian's sort of view on this is probably a a couple of areas. Success within business generally always requires a good support base. Um, And I think that's so right. And I know from my own perspective, I wouldn't have been able to do half the things if my partner and family support base wasn't there. She also states, I think, which is a, a very obvious thing, and I think we're all in agreement, that minority groups, that's culture, gender, et cetera, start from a lot more difficult place in regard to bias, whether family, uh, um, personal situations. So that's just reality, in fact, and that's a whole bigger sort of topic for, uh, for another day. Um, and her main element coming out of this is that it does come down to choice. You've got so many things to juggle up in the air you have to make priority choices. Um, And unfortunately um, for minority groups, gender, those choices are a lot more difficult to make than others who have privilege as well. So I like her way of thinking, I think it's practical, uh, but I think for all leaders need to be aware of that, that even though they may be able to achieve this balance and think that everyone else can, it can often be a lot harder starting base and a reality for other people. Um, so that, that's, uh, that that was her sort of take on it, which I think was uh, very valuable.
0: Thank you for that. Um, so I guess kind of on that diversity of thought piece, I do want to talk about the Awards Matter um, chapter in the book um, because I have to admit that I'm a bit like um, Matt Austin, who was your critique. I've never been a big fan of awards and entering competitions and have thought, oh, you know, that's just for advertising you know i won't say um but was really interested in your story about that so tell us about why you think awards matter
1: yeah it's uh i would actually say i'm exactly like uh, yourself (laughs) and matt as well and uh i'm a very you know i'm a sort of competitive and results oriented person um and i remember i got exposed to this probably at the age of 22 as a boozy advertising lunch in in london was a very poor copywriter. And one of the agency heads over lunch just told me they said, uh, yeah, results are nice, but it's awards that matter. And uh, I did think he was just taking the mickey a, a little bit on that. But over the years, um, when organisations achieve good results and numbers, hard, factual, you know, balance sheets and PL, they create a sense of contentment, satisfaction Um, But it's those awards when they're actually um, earned and well-respected within a business, that's when I term it a sense of euphoria comes across the business. The culture radiates, it buzzes, it's infectious, um, and there's nothing actually like euphoria in the work sense and sensational things and breakthrough and transformation, I think, can happen from that. Now, I'm not talking about rewards that you can actually buy and influence. But I'm talking around if you've got a customer award, uh, a supply chain uh, delivery of the year, a sustainability, great place to work award, accounts, uh, advertising award. So those awards that matter, you can't get them without delivering the results. So that's a that's an instant, but it creates something for the people in particular, way more than anything. And let's face it, numbers, results, they're good, you don't talk around those at home. Um, so they're not mutually exclusive, um, but uh, I found from a leadership view, we normally, myself included, I just push them aside and think that's for other, other companies, less successful ones. But when you get it right, it's so much better than any sort of corporate brochure or a charismatic CEO or an HR sort of rhetoric um, around your business that showcases uh, a sense of excitement, euphoria. Um, so not everyone thinks like that, uh, but I've definitely changed my views and uh, observed um, just the the hype and energy that can come from a uh, desired and respected award.
0: Yeah, and I think I, I'm going to reflect on that because that idea of euphoria in culture I think is really interesting and. Just what you said about respected awards, I think that's the key for me. Um, Thank you so much, Hamish. It's been a a lovely little chat. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to Books at Work.
1: No trouble at all. Lovely to talk, Hannah.
0: On to the It's Not Always Right to Be Right take five. One, be a radiator, not a drain. Find ways to radiate infectious possibility. Reward and encourage integrators and connectors. 2. Keep relationships intact, value and prioritise enduring relationships. 3. Compromise and hope, find a mutual outcome, choose your battles, seek to understand and decide to either compromise or be tough. 4. Bad bosses and grillings provide opportunities to learn what not to do. Five. Awards matter, the ones that are real, meaningful and truly reward what your organisation is good at, can create euphoria and build culture. That's the It's Not Always Right to Be Right Books at Work episode done and dusted. I'm Anna Hughes and that's Books That
1: Work, making work better.